as we continue our series, week 26, believe it or not, in 1 Corinthians. Thank you so much for sticking with this study. They say this is not a good idea to do a 26-week series through an entire book on a Sunday morning, but I'm not sure who they are, but I've loved it. I hope that you've loved it. You've enjoyed going through this book. The title of the series has been Good News for a Bad Church. Corinth was a church that was, wow, messed up in so many ways. Uh, If you take New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas and combine them culturally with all the stuff that goes on in those kinds of cities, that's really what Corinth was. And how did Paul address the issues that were going on in the church of Corinth? He gave them the gospel. And he said, here is what you're not understanding and and you're not believing about the gospel. It is certainly um, not changing your behavior. And so he lays out the reality of who they are in Christ, what God has done for them. And he says, you're saints because of a new birth. Now start living like it, Corinth. And so Paul here, as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, the title of the message today is simply the word agape. Agape, and that is the Greek word for love in this passage here this morning. And so in our English language, love has been um, confused, uh, watered down. We say love about all kinds of stuff. But this Greek word for agape, or this Greek word for love, agape, is talking about selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love. Selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love. In 1 Corinthians 13, whether you've grown up in church or maybe this is your first time in church ever or your first time in church in a long time, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Um, Paul writes here one of the most powerful and poetic descriptions of love, not only in all of Scripture, but truly in all of human history. And so this passage that we're looking at here this morning is 1 Corinthians 13. And let's go ahead and read the entire chapter. And then we're going to hit the highlights this morning as we look at this message entitled Agape. The Bible says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging or tinkling cymbal, just a bunch of noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Charity or love, agape love. So this word charity here in this passage, if you're reading from the King James, that's that old English word charity. We're talking about selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. So charity or love It says here in verse 4 that love or charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity or love, agape, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love does not vaunt itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly. It does not seek her own. It's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Charity or love believes all things, hopes, uh, uh, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape or charity or selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love, it never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. 
When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I also am known. And now abides faith, hope, and charity, agape love, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this scripture that you inspired close to 2,000 years ago. And thank you that this scripture we can truly say this morning is timeless. Whether we know you or not, Father, all of us in this room are looking for genuine, true love. I pray that today's message would give us a glimpse into your wonderful heart for us and that you would transform us because of your love today. Lord, help me as I preach. May our hearts be receptive to what you would have for us, Holy Spirit. May you be glorified today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned to you, the city of Corinth was well known, the book for which this uh, book is centered around and written to. The city of Corinth was well known. It was the New York City, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of its time combined. It was a port city, so they had a lot of commerce traveling through. It was a very centrally located city in the known world at that time. It was a very progressive, a very cosmopolitan type of city. It was known for its commerce. It was a place of great wealth and affluence. Because this was a port city, there were a constant stream of travelers that were coming through this city. And so Corinth was known for many things, but another thing that Corinth was known for is it was known for its pagan worship of many pagan deities, not just one, but a multitude of pagan deities. And, and because it was a heavily traveled city, frequented by travelers, businessmen, sailors, all kinds of people, they would come to this city of Corinth and they would head mainly to one temple, one place, and that was the temple of Aphrodite. There in that temple, they would worship. But this worship was not what we would think of as worship. Their worship was totally focused on sexuality in their worship of this pagan deity of Aphrodite. They had taken this man-made deity and twisted and perverted the beauty of covenant intimacy, sexual union, that was intended for God's institution of marriage, and they had brutally denigrated it and debased it. And so Paul now has been writing this book to the city of Corinth, mainly to the church of Corinth, and he addresses this issue of love. You see, the culture of Corinth had a corrupted view of what true love looked like, just like our culture today. But I think in our culture today, it's even less understood. And we have a very shallow, apathetic, and lazy view of love. We love cats. Now, no offense to you if you do love cats. <laughs> um, you know, but we say love for all kinds of things. Like I mentioned earlier, this word love is so nebulous today. It's like, well, I love cats. I love bacon. You know? And amen. I mean that, yeah, yeah. You know what's funny is you heart bacon, but your bacon doesn't heart or your heart doesn't heart bacon. So anyway, it's funny how we love bacon. 
Um, and I do. <laughs> There's some diets. You can actually have as much bacon on them as you want. Amen. Um, I love the 80s. You know, if you were a fan of the 80s, I was born in 1980, so maybe you loved the 80s. Um, I love beards. Yeah, some of you guys, you love beards. Yes, yes. Russ out there, he loves his beard. Um, you know, so you love beards. My wife doesn't. She would not like me if I had a big old beard. But anyway, uh, some people love a certain city. I heart NY. We see that t-shirt. Maybe if, if, uh, if you've been to New York, you know, you'd get that t-shirt down there in Times Square and you'd wear that. Yeah, yeah. I see you. Yeah, woo. New York City. I, I, I love NY. You know, we love all these things. Um, and, and I thought about putting one up here that says, I heart Pastor BMAC. But anyway, um, I didn't want to go that far. <laughs> My wife might say amen to that. might, but anyway. Isn't the reality when we use this word, it really comes down a lot of times in our society to this. I love me. Our love is all self-centered when we really look at it, isn't it? Even when we say we love someone else, think about it, we love them for how they make us feel. I love you because of how you love me. I love you because of how you make me feel. And I'll love you as long as you make me feel a certain way about me. Ooh. Yeah. You see, in Corinth, the focus was love was defined by sex. And that was really the whole thing. And you could say that that's even how it is today. I mean, love has been so debased and cheapened. And, and people throw around this beautiful uh, picture of covenant intimacy and, and so certainly that's the case today, but I would even say it's even more base than that today. In our culture today, love is just defined by self. It's like, it's all about me, myself, and I, about what makes me feel good, about my emotions. And what's funny is, is we don't like to think this way. We don't think that we're like this way. Uh, one uh, writer said it this way. She, she said, we want to believe we are thinking beings who are sometimes emotional. But the reality is, is that we are emotional beings who sometimes think. And so we're in a culture that is just inundated by a wrong view of, of love. We don't even understand what the word means today. We just throw it out there and we'll say we love chocolate ice cream. In the same breath, we say we love our spouse. And are those even the same? And so as we look at this, we see that our love, true love, requires controlled emotions and counterintuitive choices. For what we see in agape, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love is a choice that is made to love even when we don't feel like loving. Because the love is not focused on ourself, it's focused on others. And truly, to be unconditionally loved in this world is rare. True love is not about what you're going to do for me or how you're going to treat me or about what's going to happen to me so that I can then respond. No, true love is about me controlling those emotions that sometimes make me not want to love, but then making counterintuitive choices in those moments when I just don't feel like loving you. You see, God didn't just feel like loving us. He chose to love us. He chose to give his son in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And like I said, that love is foreign in most relationships today. Today we say, I love you until, <coughs> rather than say, I love you regardless. And so I want to share these introductory thoughts. Love is always and never in our best interest. 
What do I mean by that? Kind of a paradoxical statement, isn't it? Well, what I mean by that is it's always in our best interest if we're reflecting the love of Christ, but it's never in our best interest if we're reflecting love for self. It's always in our best interest if we're working toward the good of others, but it's never in our best interest when we are working toward the good of ourselves. And, and again, self-love, self-focused love, it's all about me, myself, and I is destructive. So what do we do with this? How do we make sure that love is defined the correct way? Well, here at Fairview, <coughs> we don't believe that we have the answer residing in and of ourselves. We believe it rests in what the Word of God says. And right here in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a very clear portrait painted to us of what love is. Because ultimately in the Bible, love is defined by God. And so as you look at the culture of love around us, ultimately we look to the Word to get our definition and our foundation and our anchor of love. First John 4, 8 through 10 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Do you see the difference? Do you see the agape love there? Do you see the selfless, sacrificial love there? It wasn't that God chose to love us because we first loved him. No, he was the initiator. He was the prime mover. He was the ultimate first cause in this great truth of what unconditional, eternal, sacrificial, selfless love is. Agape love. Agape love. And he says that he sent his son (coughs) to be the propitiation for our sins. This scripture points over and over to what he has done for us as as, as you read it. He's saying, I am love. He's saying, I'm the one that you should be looking to for love. In all other places where you look for that, you will fail in your search. But God's saying here, I will show you what true love really looks like because God's saying, I am its perfection. He is the king of love. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians 13 shows us what love actually is. And so as we're going to be going through what love is this morning, we're just going to look at all these qualities and very quickly summarize them with three areas. Number one, we're going to kind of start at the end of this chapter and talk about where love is going. And then we're going to look about or, you know, ultimately talk about what's love going to look like in the future. So what will love be like even on into the future? Then number two, we're going to look at what love is not what love is not. And then number three, we're going to look at what love should look like. And it's not going to really be an outline. We're just going to go through all these words here. So you've got some blanks on your handout here. So I'd encourage you to write these down as we go along. So number one, we look at where is love going? And then let's look at verses eight through 11 and just revisit those for a moment. It says this, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Number one, we see that love is transforming. Love is transforming, and that's captured here in verses 8 through 11. Agape love, this otherworldly, this divine, this amazing love that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ, his son, this love will not leave us the same. 
This love will change us. It transforms us. All the things in this life that we think that are so significant, that we think are good things, even, Paul says, all of this is going to change. Paul's saying here, we're just catching a glimpse right now. We're just seeing through a glass darkly, but then we're going to see face to face. Paul's saying here, the uh, glimpses of this kind of love that you capture on this earth are just that. They're just a glimpse. But one day, one day, it'll become more fully known. And so Paul's saying here that this love changes you from the inside out. It transforms you. When, when God's agape love overwhelms your life, it causes you to say the war is over. God, you are enough. Lord, your love is what I need because every other place in this culture is a culture built on conditionality. I'll love you if and until. And God says here in this passage, no, I love you right now, but I'm going to love you forever. And because of that, I'm transforming you moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour. And that's why we're encouraged to grow in that grace. Once we've received his love, once we receive that grace, then God says to continue to grow in it because it transforms us day by day. Well, number two, we see not only is love transforming and we even catch a glimpse of what it's going to look like in the future but number two we see that love is fulfilling love is fulfilling where is love going love is taking us to a fulfilling relationship with god um he says here in this passage in verse 12 he says but then shall i know even as i also am known to be fully known think about it think about your life for a second to be fully known, every single part of you, and yet to still be loved? No, that sounds too good to be true. Pastor, there are things that even my spouse doesn't know about me. They've never known about me because if they knew that about me, they would stop loving me. If my parents knew this, they would, they would not love me. Now, we also got to talk about what love is because love loves you enough not to let you go and destroy your life. You know, God loves us so much, he hates our sin very deeply because he knows it'll ruin our life. It'll destroy us. Man, the first time I saw God's wrath in light of his love was life-changing for me. I saw that God's wrath was actually the vehement response of his love for me. So this love is fulfilling. You see, it's not normal in this world of conditionality. We seek to hide. We seek to position. We seek to manipulate people's knowledge of who we are because we're afraid if we're fully known, we will not be loved. We will not be accepted. We will be rejected. And God says here, no, he knows you. He knows you the best, and yet he loves you the most. Isn't that amazing? seems like we're always searching for someone or something that will truly and fully satisfy our loves, our, our lives and our love. And I think part of that desperate search is based out of this need to avoid being fully known by those who should know us best. So Paul says here, listen, this love is, is fulfilling and it's going to be even more fulfilling. It's like this unending avalanche of agape, selfless, sacrificial, unending, eternal love. And that brings us to the third truth, and that is love is eternal. 
God's love is eternal. Look at verse 13. It says, And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You know, faith is that gift that takes us to the place of repentance. Hope is that moment when our faith will be made sight. But think about this. Paul says there's faith, there's hope, there's love. But Paul is saying here that there will come a time when faith will no longer be necessary. Our faith will be turned to sight when we see Jesus. And hope will no longer be needed because then we will be. That's our blessed hope when we see Jesus. He's the culmination of that hope. But Paul's saying here, while faith and, and uh, hope are going to cease to be what they are in their fullness, or they're actually going to be fulfilled, love is what's eternal. The very best expressions of love here on this earth are nothing to be compared with what it will truly be like to be in eternity. In the presence of absolute, infinite, unbridled love. I don't think, and again, this word love, we're almost afraid of the word today because of how it's been abused and misunderstood. But the very fact that we exist today is because the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in their unceasing union of endless agape, sacrificial, selfless love, decided to include you in the plan. You and me. And so this love is transforming. It's fulfilling. It's eternal. But back up with me to verse 1 of this passage, because I want you to see number 3, or number 4, that love is, is humble. It's not proud. So number 2, what is love not? We see what love is going to be. We see kind of the future of where this love culminates. But, but number 2, we see what, what love is not. Well, number 1, it's humble. It's not proud. Look at verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The word pictures that Paul used here were very specific and they were understandable to the church of Corinth, the people to whom he was writing. They knew that if there was someone who was important in their city or if they had something important to say, they would go to the amphitheater or the town square and they would make as much racket and noise as possible because they wanted to be heard. They didn't have cell phones in those days. They didn't have their Facebook wall to post to continually. So they would literally have symbols. They would have a noisemaker. And they would normally have people, they would have their entourage if they were an important public speaker. And they would go into the amphitheater, they would go into the town square, and they would beat on those, those symbols, making loud noises to say, hear ye, hear ye, very, very prideful. And so Paul paints this picture here, and he says, no, Love is not proud, it's, it's humble. You see, pride tries to draw as much attention to oneself, to make the noise, to make people think that they're more important. Again, why? Because in a, in a sense, they still don't understand love. They're, see, they're, they're searching for affirmation. They're searching for acceptance. When God says, I love you, I accept you, I died for you, will you receive my grace? Will you receive me? You see... So he says here, love is humble, it's not proud. Love moves away from the noise. Love is about serving others without drawing attention to oneself. Love is humble. There's no gongs, there's no symbols, there's no noise that has to be made in your expressions of love if it's truly agape, if it's truly sacrificial. If we're doing things just to draw attention to ourselves, we are not loving. 
I got to share a story with you because it really boggles my mind even to this day. Back in the spring, we were going to do some service projects here in our community, and thankfully we were able to do those. And, and uh, it was great to go out in our community and have three or four service projects where we just serve people without any expectation. Can I be honest with you? I think sometimes churches have gotten into the habit of doing good things to make them look good in their community. I'm not interested in that. You know why? Because that's self-serving. And unfortunately, in that whole process of us serving in our community, and I I don't share this story to draw any negative uh, attention to anyone else, but there was another church, when they were asking about the service projects, they asked, well, hey, is the newspaper going to be there? Because if they're not, we're not really interested in being there. You know what? Love's humble. It doesn't have to have a publicity team saying what we're doing and why we're doing it. (laughs) There's some things that some people do you'll never know. Why? Because it's not about knowing what they do. It's about humility, not making noise. Number two, we see here what love is not. Uh, Verse two, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. What's Paul say here? He says, number two, love is understanding. It's not about knowing it all. Love understands that no matter what activity you're engaged in, it isn't about you. It's about others. Whether we are on stage or in a parking lot, whether we are in the nursery or we're leading a small group, whether we're in our neighborhoods or we're in our office, love gives us the understanding to realize that no matter how much we might know or how much we might do, it's not about that in and of itself. It's about reflecting the love of Christ through those roles, those relationships, and those responsibilities. I shared with you last week in our spiritual gifts message that, listen, there's no big shots here. Some gifts are more public than others, but love understands that you can have the greatest spiritual gifts. And this is really the context of where Paul is sharing this passage. Paul's sharing this passage on love, saying, listen, in the use of your spiritual gifts, use them through the lens of agape, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. So he says here, love is understanding. It's understanding that ultimately these gifts that we have, these responsibilities that we have, these roles, these relationships that we have are to manifest this true agape, which the world is desperately searching for. And they're searching for it in all the wrong definitions of love and in all the wrong sources of love. Love is humble. It's understanding. Forgot to click there. (laughs) Like, where's the word? There it is. Understanding. Verse 3, love is meek. It says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, have not sacrificial love, it profits me nothing. Love is meek. Love is the quiet strength that will continue to serve others without talking about it, mentioning it, or posting it. Love is meek. And so, humble, understanding, meek. Do these things characterize our love for God and our love for others? Because as you read these words, these all point us to a person, and his name is Jesus. He lived this. 
He showed this. He modeled this. And now we see what love is. We see that love is content. Look at verse 4. Paul goes into this famous passage here within the passage, and he says, Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. So Paul says here it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. Comes back around and he says again, it's not proud. What is he saying? He's saying love is content with where we are and not consumed with who we're not because we realize God's made us, he's created us, and God loves us unconditionally. So we don't have to search to be somebody else. We don't have to go on this tireless search for a new identity because in him we are found to be accepted and beloved because in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. You see it? This brings contentment. The cross brings contentment. Truly beholding the cross brings contentment in our life. Love is content with what we have. It's not consumed with what others have. Love is content because we have seen that our God is good in a world that is filled with fear, anxiety, and frustration and hurt. We as followers of Jesus can be content. We can love. Contentment. We see in verse 5 that love is selfless. It does not behave itself unseemly. It does not seek her own. It is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. Boy, when you read these words, it really does confront us with the reality of many times our love is self-motivated. So true love, true agape, sacrificial, selfless, unconditional, the kind of love that we're all desperately searching for and need is at its core, it's not self-seeking, but it's others-seeking. Ask yourself this question about your love for others. Can you truly be happy for someone when they are successful in life? Especially someone who's wronged you and who has hurt you. Isn't it true that for those who have wronged us and hurt us, we have this little list in the back of our head that says, I'm going to always be keeping tabs on you. And if you are successful, it's going to make me grit my teeth. And if you suffer pain and loss, it's going to make me have a little sly grin agape is selfless agape doesn't keep score because agape selfless love realizes the slate was broken at Calvary God doesn't keep score the sins that you keep reminding God of he forgot he cast them as far as the east is from the west. Micah says, into the sea of his forgetfulness. Into the sea of his forgetfulness, he cast them. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. God doesn't keep score, and yet we keep on keeping score. No, love is selfless. It says, I can truly rejoice when you win, and I don't. It says here, love does not keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs thinks no evil. Do y'all have kids? If you don't, 
you were a kid at one point, and if you had siblings, you remember keeping score all the time? Isn't it true that kids, they're constantly bartering? And I'm not going to embarrass my kids publicly or try not to, but it's funny to hear the fights over the front seat. How many of you had the fight? You know, parents, the fight over the front seat. I want to sit in the front. Okay, well, if you do this time, I'm going to do it the next. And they go through this whole system of conditionality. This whole, I mean, these kids, they are like brilliant, brilliant economists. They know how to barter. They know how to barter for the front seat. They know how, I mean, I mean, there is one person in our family who shall remain nameless, but they got this whole horde of Twix this last week and a half at Halloween. And they know exactly how many Twix there are, and they set up devices in their box to know if someone got in them or not. I mean, these, these kids know how to keep score. And Joey is smiling with a big grin. I love you, buddy. Anyway, they know how to keep score. And to hear my daughter and Joey, to, to, to hear my oldest son and my oldest daughter go through the scorekeeping, it's, it's funny, but it's also, you know, just again, kids are growing, young people are growing. But isn't it true that we grow up as adults and we still are keeping score? Hey, husbands, you got that list on your wife? Wife, do you have that list on your husband? Do you still have that list of wrongs piled up from years of being together? And what happens? When do you pull that list out? At the next argument. You know what Agape says? I'm going to wipe the slate clean. Well, how's that possible, Pastor? Because we can, we can forgive, but we can't forget. I understand that. But every time that Satan tempts you to bring back up the list, you have to go through the gospel again. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. And you have to say, no, I'm not going to bring that list up. That list was done away with at the cross. I'm going to love this person unconditionally. That is the love that we see here in this passage. God did not keep... He is not keeping score. If we are his children, the score has been settled. It is finished. I believe when Jesus said paid in full, I agree with you, Jesus. I honor you. You are the word from heaven, and I'm going to believe by faith that you say it's finished. It's over. It's done. Yes, I agree. Freedom. I receive your selfless, sacrificial love. John Chrysostom, an early church father and a martyr for the cause of the gospel, said this. He says, the impact of a wrong against love is like the impact of a spark against the ocean. Love quenches all wrongs. Imagine taking a spark of fire and dropping it in the ocean today. Immediately that spark is extinguished. That's the kind of love that God has given to us in the gospel. That's the kind of love that Paul is presenting to this culture and to this church who really had a distorted, twisted, debased, messed up view of love. And he says, no, there's a higher love here. There's an eternal love, a selfless, agape, sacrificial love. He goes on to say this. He says that love is also righteous. Look at verse 6. He says, It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And I'm so thankful for this verse because this tells me that love loves me enough. Yes, love accepts me as I am, but love does not let me stay where I am. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. You see, the true love of God doesn't say, oh, no big deal. I love you regardless. You can keep on doing whatever. No, no, no. True love is righteous. Agape love says, I love you enough that I'm going to tell you it's wrong. Don't run into the street because you're going to destroy your life. I love you enough to tell you that you're wrong 
Change your ways. Repent. Change your mind. You see, righteous, true love leads to the gospel. Love resides where the gospel resides, at the intersection of grace and truth. And when we love others with agape love, it is a righteous love. It is a Christ-centered love. This kind of love will lead people to the gospel. So do we love one another enough that we love them with a righteous love that says, you know, I love you so much I'm going to confront you when you're wrong because I love you. That's not the world's idea of love today. The world's idea of love today is say nothing, just be quiet, just let people go on about their life. How foolish it would be for us to see our three-year-old child running into the interstate to play in traffic and not say, oh, well, I love them. I don't want to cramp their style. No, you're going to scream at the top of your lungs, stop. Don't destroy your life. That's what love does. So we see all these things, that love is content, it's selfless, it's righteous, it's meek, it's understanding, it's humble, it's eternal, it's fulfilling, it's transforming. But then Paul sums it up here in verse 7, and he says this, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. What is he saying? Love is relentless. Agape love is relentless. Love is in a constant pursuit for the benefit and good of others. And that is the love that God had for us. This love never, ever gives up. This love cannot stop loving. Love believes the unbelievable. It hopes when hope is lost. It searches out those who are in the far country. This is the kind of love that God had for us in that while we were yet sin- sinners, Christ died for us. Have you received his amazing love in your life? Have you allowed him to come into your life to be the savior of your soul, the forgiver of your sins, the hope of eternal life? The fulfiller of all that your heart has been searching for, my friend, is found in the one who breathed that heart into existence, the one who purposed for you to be here on this earth. Paul was saying of all these things, all these things against the contrast of their selfishness, the Corinthians were even taking part of who God was. They were taking the Holy Spirit and they were twisting the Holy Spirit and its spiritual gifts for their own self-serving agenda. That's why Paul stopped here and he gave this great expression, this great writing on what sacrificial love was because Corinth had twisted so much understanding of the love of God. They were even twisting their understanding of the Holy Spirit and they were using it to puff themselves up to inflate their own ego. So why does love matter? Number one, because Jesus commanded it. This is the command of the new covenant. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. You need to underline that word new and find out why Jesus said new. Because he didn't say an old, he said a new for a reason. Kine, new, unique. A new command I give to you, that you love one another, not as yourself. You see, notice the difference here in this command and another command previous to the, in the Gospels where, where he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He says here, love one another as what? As I have loved you. That's a sacrificial, selfless love. That's the kind of love that Jesus loved us with. That's the love that he gives to us through his death, burial, and resurrection. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. So Jesus commands this. Jesus is basically saying here, and and through the Gospels, he was telling the Jews, listen, you're all wrapped up in the law. I'm here to wrap you up in my love. 
I'm here to get you so wrapped up in my love that you end up following all that stuff in the Old Testament anyway, but it's a greater motivation. You're not doing this to be accepted. You're doing this because you already have my acceptance. That's the difference. It's a difference in focus, but it's a difference that makes all the difference in the world because it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the love of Christ that transforms us. And so he says here, he commands this. Jesus commands this. This is why love matters. But also it's because the world is desperate for real love. And they don't even know it. But what did he say there to his disciples? He said, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know. The world is desperate for real love. And so we must be grateful. We must be grateful, number one, that God is love. John, the disciple who was probably the closest to Jesus in a physical understanding of that, of the 12 disciples, he writes in 1 John, and we must honor and respect the revelation that God gives to him when John sums it up and he says, God is love. Oh, there's great debates. Is God holy? Is God love? Yes, both. Holy love. A love that loves you so much that he's not going to allow sin to ruin your life. He's going to do everything he can to stop and stand in the way and say, Stop, I love you so much, I don't want you to do this. You see it? God is love. God's love and God's holiness are perfectly held in a beautiful tension of his deity. Number two, love is unfair. In in 1 John 4, 9, it goes on to say, God is love. And what's the revelation of that? God sent his own son. That wasn't fair for God. I mean, if God gave us what we deserved, we would all be separated from him for all of eternity. But love is unfair, which brings us to the reality that God is unfair. God does not treat us in this system of fairness. He treats us through grace, through unconditional love at the cross. And so why do we get this wrong so often? Why do we struggle with this kind of love so much? Part of the reason is because we're all still waiting for that perfect love. (laughs) Because we think that if someone somehow loves us perfectly, then, catch the difference, if we think that someone somewhere somehow would love us perfectly, then we would be able to love them perfectly. Do you see the mix-up? But what stands in the way of this is not the reality. And what happens is is we think that, and then we become wounded. And that wound permeates our entire vision of what love can be and what God has for us. We've experienced rejection. We've been deserted. We've been hurt. We've been broken. And that wound becomes a blinding filter to the great truth that God's stating here in 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 John 4. You see, we're searching, we're waiting for perfect love to find us. And the message of the gospel, folks, is he already found you. He already did. You don't have to go on a tireless search for this. This agape love is all that you need. And in him, your life will be completely transformed You can take a deep breath and let it out and say, I'm home. How deep the Father's love for me. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. 
How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You may be familiar with the militant Muslim group called Boko Haram. They are located primarily in northeastern Africa, Nigeria, Sudan, and Chad. In recent years, they have proclaimed their allegiance to ISIS. They have a simple strategy in that area of the world, and it's simply this. They are Christian hunters. That is their goal. That is their mission. To convert or kill as many Christians as they possibly can. A couple of years ago, in an issue of Relevant Magazine, there was an article entitled, The New Face of Martyrdom. It told the story of a husband and wife named Micah and Dorcas. In Nigeria, they were on their way to a wedding in another village when they were suddenly surrounded by a group of Boko Haram militants. At gunpoint, they demanded that Micah and Dorcas renounce their faith, convert to Islam, or die. Micah said to them in that moment, We are Christians today, and there is no way that we're going to turn from Christ. The militants frustrated at Micah's response. They turned the gun on his wife and they said to Dorcas, You must convert to Islam. She responded, How can I turn away from someone who loved me so much? In that moment, instantly, they shot her dead right in front of her husband. They had been married for 20 years. Then they take him, they take a machete, and according to Islamic law, they sever his right arm below the elbow, and they attempt to do the same thing to his left arm, but they were not successful. For some reason, they left hurriedly. I guess they heard villagers coming out from the village where they had attacked them on the outskirts of the village. But in that process, the attackers stole Micah's cell phone, and they left, basically leaving Micah for dead. The villagers came out and were able to get him to a hospital to rescue his life. They were able to uh, surgically re-engineer his left arm to where he could keep using it. Of course, his right one was lost. Two months later, after his miraculous recovery, he gets out of rehab. He borrows a friend's cell phone, and he makes a phone call to his cell phone. Incredibly, one of the attackers answered his old cell phone. Micah said this to his attacker, You thought you killed me, but God has saved me. The attacker then shockingly responded and said, I'm so sorry for what we did for you, for what we did to you. Micah then responded, He said, he said these words, I am a Christian. I don't bear grudges. I don't keep records of wrong. I've already forgiven you. See, some people might ask, where was God? Why didn't God spare Dorcas? Why, why didn't God keep these militants from killing his, his, his children, his believers? And people cry out, where was God? I'm going to tell you where God was. It was right there in that response. That's where God was. 
I don't need to look for God anywhere else than to see that's where God was. God was in that man's response because I'm telling you right now, I'm not sure that I would respond that way. If I'd seen my wife killed, if I'd seen my body maimed, could I say, I'm a Christian. I don't bear grudges. I don't keep records of wrong. I've already forgiven you. I would say Micah got a hold of agape. Micah is evidence that Jesus resides in his life. I don't need to look far for evidence of God because it's all over those words. That's the kind of love. When we truly let this love get a hold of our lives, it'll change everything. And it's only when that love can live its way and then through our lives that this agape can permeate our relationships with others. It's only then, folks, that we can point others to Christ. Let's pray.